The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. over you simply find out that you are not allowed to criticize you are listening to ach i'm handy your host but before we start today's show i would like to thank brian for his recent donation if you are able to help keep the show on the air please go to achshow.com and click the banner at the top today is thursday so i'm delighted to welcome back my dear friend dr peter hammonds let's bring him up right now peter are you with us i'm with you thank you andrew Thank you, Peter. And today we're going to continue our series on Stephen Mitford Goodson's book. Our show is a derivation of that book's title, The Real Story of the History of Central Banking and Its Enslavement of Mankind. Uh, The link to the book is in the post for the show, so please avail yourself of that. And Peter, where would you like to start us off today with part two? Yes, you know, Andrew, just recently I did a presentation on uh, 21 of the most important books ever written. And um, uh, amongst the many books that are listed, of course, the Bible is number one, uh, in an Augustine's Confessions and Augustine's City of God and Calvin's Institutes and so many other uh, great books. Um, but I include a history of central banking and the slavery of mankind as one of my choice of one of the 21 most important books ever written. Now, we're not saying necessarily most successful or the most read, but most important. And this book, I think, is the most important book in understanding not just the world of finance, but a lot of the wars and depressions and recessions that have happened in the last several centuries. Uh, In fact, I don't think you can understand the last three centuries in particular without understanding this book. And uh, last week, we took a huge sweep looking at the Uh, first two major chapters in history of central banking, how usury destroyed the Roman Empire and uh, how they moved from the Copper Age and the Silver Age of the money changes in bringing about the collapse of Rome and and Julius Caesar's bold attempt to try and prevent um, uh, the the destruction of of Rome and uh, why he was assassinated, the Gold Age and uh, and then the role of the church and uh, uh, especially in the decline and fall of Rome and the hidden origins of the Bank of England, which was absolutely fascinating how uh, very few people, something like just over 40 people out of over 500 members of parliament actually voted for this Bank of England bill. So it wasn't even 10% of, you know, forget about a quorum, not even 10% of the representatives in the uh, British parliament had any say in the launching of the Bank of England, which has caused such enormous trouble. 
And so looking at the role of um, not just the glorious Middle Ages and, and how when usury was forbidden and the money changes were banned, uh, how the average person only had to work about 14 weeks of the year and they had a huge amount of holidays and they were uh, doing extremely well. Um, they could have something like um, 200, uh, 180 to 200 holidays in a year and that's why the great cathedrals were built when there was no usury, no interest and people didn't have to pay that much taxes and uh, the flowering of industry and creativity uh, architecture in the Middle Ages uh, is, a, is a direct result of the banishing of those who would charge usury. Um, so a lot of these were all important, but now we get to the chapter three in the history of central banking. It was my joy and privilege to know Stephen Goodson personally, and not just to read his books, uh, but to have him as a guest speaker at our Reformation Society on Thursday nights and a regular guest for meals. And uh, I was even asked by his family to, to do his funeral and committal service when he died so untimely and under such suspicious circumstances after he had specifically dealt with state capture and the role of the uh, banks in uh, bringing about the enslavement of South Africa. And uh, bear in mind, Stephen Mitford Goodson was the, a director of the South African Reserve Bank and he's the author of Inside the South Reserve Bank. He's a real whistleblower. But of all the books he's written, he's written some great books. And some of them, like an, uh, Henrik Favut and Jan Christian Smuts, I read in just a couple of days. That's how engrossing these books were. But A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind is certainly one of the most important books ever written, certainly the most important book Stephen Mitford Goodson wrote. He's starting here uh, with Chapter 3 on Napoleon and uh, the Bank de France. Napoleon said, after being shown an interest table, the deadly facts here and revealed lead me to wonder that this monster interest has not devoured the whole human race. And so... Uh, Emperor Napoleon, who was emperor from 1804 to 1815, was very mindful of the insidious role of the money changers and the usurers and those who uh, were undermining everything to do with uh, freedom and prosperity. And so he understood and he declared that international money, the money changers, stood behind every foreign enemy, every monarch, every political party, including the Jacobins, the revolutionaries, who had just turned France into an absolute uh, disaster area, reign of terror, uh, chopping off 30,000 heads on the guillotine and executing hundreds of thousands of, sorry, 40,000 heads were chopped off the guillotines and over 300,000 executed by firing squads and other hideous means. And uh, so the Jacobins, or we would today call them communists, but back then they were called the Jacobins, um, that the same money hands were behind them, international finance. And he says, this is quoting now from from uh, Napoleon, money has no motherland. Finances are without patriotism, without decency. Their sole object is gain. And so he said his system that he is offering to free France from this usury enslavement was for the application of the resource of government, including finances, for the benefit and use of the people for the greater glory of God. I think many people find it surprising that Napoleon could talk about the greater glory of God. He wasn't an atheist like the French revolutionaries, and I think there's a bit of a mistake to confuse Napoleon with the revolutionaries because he was not revolutionary. He was, in fact, anti-revolutionary. And uh, to think that the French revolution Napoleon is one the same is, is a real mistake. So, uh, interestingly, that's why he had a religious service and 
his wedding was in a cathedral and his coronation was in a cathedral and and uh, singing of Christian hymns and all the rest of it was part of it. So so he, he was no atheist. He was not a revolutionary, uh, but he was depicted so uh, because they had to justify why they were going to war against France when the French Revolution had been over and Napoleon had restored order uh, to France and ended the bloodbath and uh, was, in fact, doing a lot to improve the situation for the common man on the ground. And suddenly, all those emperors who'd stood by and done nothing while France was butchering their people, killing even their king and the Queen Mary Antoinette and others on the guillotine, now suddenly they swung into war uh, against France when France was actually now trying to return to uh, good Christian principles. So uh, interesting that. But what Napoleon was saying is we need to maintain spiritual values as well as material values. We must lift up the nation against party politics. We need patriotism, not greed. We need loyalty as against fear. And so uh, he had a clear idea of what he was doing. And he said the bedrock of the French economy must be agriculture. The soul of the people, the foundation of the kingdom needs to be industry. And he said uh, agriculture is the most important, industry is the second most important, and a poor third is foreign trade. Foreign trade should only consist of the surplus of our agricultural industry Foreign trade ought to be the servant of agriculture and the servant of home industry. And we should never put our agriculture and home industry subordinate to foreign trade. Foreign trade is tertiary, not primary, and certainly not even secondary. Napoleon would not allow loans for current expenditure, uh, whether civil or military, under any circumstances. So on the subject of debt, Napoleon said, you have only to consider what loans can lead to in order to realize their danger. He said, we must have nothing to do with loans. Loans are going to enslave us. And so uh, the first act of Napoleon on assuming power's first consul, November the 9th and 1799, was to establish the, the Banque de France. And it was a joint stock company which um, replaced the 15 mostly Jewish private banking houses which had been deeply involved in financing the French Revolution, 1789 to 1799. And so these banks had charged rapious rates of interest on loans to the French crown. So that prior to 1789, prior to the revolution, over 50% of the national budget was to pay interest to the bankers, 50%. So he set up the bank with share capital of 30 million francs divided into 30,000 shares of 1,000 francs each, of which a portion was subscribed by Napoleon and his family and then other shareholders were limited to no more than 6% per annum, and uh, they made sure that the uh, larger shareholders were electing the 15 regents or directors who had a general council to administer the bank um, and they had inspectors, and he made sure that the bank did not belong to the shareholders only. It belonged to the state also, but not too much, he said. He wanted to be sure that the bank was free of private bankers, but that it was a servant to the people with a little bit of supervision by the state, but, but not that much. He wanted it as, as free enterprise as possible and free from monopoly control. And so uh, he also uh, abolished the right of the rival banks to issue banknotes. And he said, uh, we cannot allow this artificial money being produced by these people with rapious interest. And Napoleon was so suspicious and distrustful of the bankers that he personally supervised the operations of the treasury. And he did this primarily to exclude the Rothschilds. He recognized the Rothschilds were the greatest threat to freedom, to prosperity, and to the common people of France. 
And so he, he basically closed down the Rothschild banks and he opened up a bank that truly belonged to the people of France. And this explains why the Rothschilds moved the people they controlled into war against Napoleon. Yes, there'd been a terrible French Revolution for 10 years, but that was over now. And here you're having order and the church coming back uh, under Napoleon and suddenly Europe mobilizes to destroy Napoleon. And Napoleon made the franc the most stable currency in Europe. And after France abandoned the loan markets of the city of London, depression settled on its fraternity of bankers and usurers. Uh, and here I'm quoting, of course, from Stephen Richard Goodson. Uh, depression settled upon the fraternity of bankers and usurers in London. And uh, at this point, Napoleon refused to sign the trade treaty, which the British tried to push on him, which was basically, it was called free trade, but it was actually a modern day version of globalization. And he preferred to go with the continental policy of isolationism from the so-called global uh, agenda. So England, plainly under the direction of her international bankers, such as the Rothschilds, proceeded now to bankroll Austria, Prussia, Russia, Spain, and Sweden to declare war on France. And the coalition forces exceeded 600,000. And Napoleon couldn't even muster a third of that number, so he was way outnumbered and in deep trouble. But so they were hoping they'd force Napoleon to have to take a massive banker's loan. He's got to get millions of pounds. How's he going to get millions of pounds without a loan from them? Well, this is when, December the 20th, 1803, Napoleon trumped the warmongers by selling Louisiana, huge part, not just, it's bigger than the area that Louisiana is today in America, and he sold to the United States for three million pounds. Now, that Louisiana purchase was a tremendous advance for the United States of America, but it, it saved France from having to take a loan uh, from bankers because it got money from America in gold that enabled it to now uh, respond to the coalition forces and to be able to defend itself. And uh, that put back the cause of the Allies uh, by another three years. And so by 1806, uh, the coalition was ready to attack again, and they were defeated at Jena and Napoleon um, started a whole series of, of wars to defend himself from the attacks from those who were puppets of the Rothschilds. This is very interesting. This isn't the way we would have normally understood the history of the Napoleonic Wars, but this is how Stephen Mitford Goodson's exposing things in his history of central banking and enslavement of mankind. So in 1807, at the Treaty of Tilsit, on a raft in the middle of the Newman River in East Prussia, Napoleon and Tsar Alexander I hammered out an agreement where they were able to be masters of continental Europe, Russia and France. And so Alexander agreed to join Napoleon's continental blockade of England and to provide each other with mutual support. And at that time, France and Russia were the only two countries in all of Europe which didn't have a Rothschild bank. They weren't in debt to the Rothschilds. They weren't using the usury system. They had free and independent banks that were um, not charging interest uh, on the people and loans, just basically a very, very small um, service charge uh, handling fee, which was minuscule, so it wasn't on a percentage basis. And uh, this is why France was now able to become so prosperous and the franc was able to be this most stable currency in Europe. And Russia was doing very well too. Well, because of some real connivings, um, the uh, British managed to persuade Alexander to break with France and to 
start to trade with Britain. And as a result, Napoleon decided to invade Russia on 1812, 1812 overture. Uh, and if you've read the book War and Peace or seen the film War and Peace, you've got a bit of an idea on all that was involved. And uh, this turned to be a disaster for France, uh, <laughs> defeated by General Winter, as some people put it, so the harsh climate in, in Russia and the scorched earth campaign uh, by the Russian army uh, meant that the French army was uh, overextended, their supply lines were too long, and uh, they had to retreat over scorched earth uh, with inadequate clothing in the harsh uh, Russian winter. And then Napoleon was defeated at the Battle of the Nations by Leipzig in 1813. And so he had to abdicate at Fontainebleau. Well, at this point, while he's banished the island of Elba, just between Corsica and Tuscany, Napoleon staged his big comeback, which led to the massive Battle of Waterloo in what today is Belgium, 18th of June, 1815. Well, the belligerents, England, Prussia, and France, were all financed at this point by Nathan Rothschild. France received a loan of £10 million for this war. So Napoleon was actually being bankrolled now by the Rothschilds. Uh, interesting why they would have wanted this comeback and why they would have manipulated uh, this and to got France to war. Well, it so happened this led to one of the greatest expansions of power by the Rothschild family because they organized false information that after the Battle of Waterloo was won by the Germans and British combined forces, the and Rothschilds who controlled the wire services, all the communications, news media, put out a false report that Napoleon had won the Battle of Waterloo and uh, the British and the German forces had lost. And this led to a panic on the stock market in England, a huge selling off of assets and stocks, which Rothschilds bought up at fire sale prices. And then when the news came out that actually Britain and Germany had won the Battle of Waterloo and France had lost, Napoleon was, was defeated. Uh, suddenly all the stock market soared again, and so the Rothschilds acquired colossal amounts of power and influence and finances as a result of false information deliberately spread after the um, Battle of Waterloo, which uh, leads one to the suspicion uh, that they didn't give the £10 million loan to France to rearm and get ready for this Battle of Waterloo without the idea that they would gain a lot more out of it. So very interesting. Also suspicious is after Napoleon was exiled to the British island of St. Helena, within six years he died. Age 51, a fit young man, no reason for him to have died, but the evidence is that he died of cyanide poisoning, chronic arsenic intoxication, uh, the work of a Rothschild assassin, and uh, there is a uh, the quote here of the assassination of Napoleon uh, delivered at Sandhurst Military Academy London by Ben Wider, uh, who documented uh, 1998 uh, the poisoning and who did it and how the Rothschilds were behind the poisoning of Napoleon. Um, quite sad, uh, uh, certainly one of the greatest military figures of uh, recent history. And uh, this was part of a pattern repeated through the last two centuries of assassinating all leaders who proposed or institute or maintain systems of usury-free banking or who didn't have a Rothschild bank and refused to charge rapious interest on their clients. But as Stephen Goodson points out that the Code Napoleon uh, introduced uh, in 1804 
led to economic reforms that substantially reduced taxes, which massively increased trade, which developed lots of new industries like cotton making and sugar beets, uh, which also uh, turned the French economy around. And infrastructure was upgraded on a vast scale, not just in France, but throughout Europe as a result. And so under Napoleon, 20,000 miles or 32,000 kilometers of roads were built and 12,000 miles of regional roads or 19,000 kilometers, more than 1,000 miles of canals, bridges, dredging, expansion of harbors. I mean, that's over 1,600 kilometers of uh, canals and, and dredging and harbors uh, built, such as at Cherbourg and Dunkirk. Waterworks, public buildings, galleries, the Louvre, all financed with interest-free money from the Banque de France. So this isn't something I learned at school uh, in history, I must say. Uh, Napoleon also introduced an established industrial board, which provided uh, lots of data and information to French industry and, and universities and for engineering and science and technology and uh, professional schools for midwifery and obstetrics and veterinary science. So there was tremendous um, advance and... Um, uh, pointed out that there's an interesting pattern that one can see that many leaders who opposed uh, Rothschild banks end up assassinated. And Stephen Goodson points out that that included James Garfield and William McKinley and Warren Harding and John F. Kennedy. And, uh, and although he wasn't physically assassinated, Richard Nixon, uh, all everybody is character assassinated, all uh, had one thing in common. They all expressed great interest in reforming the Federal Reserve Bank and uh, that, um, interesting, they were targeted afterwards, if not by direct assassins, then by character assassins in the case of Nixon. So that's a new dimension to consider. And um, uh, Napoleon said this uh, in uh, his last days in Napoleon, I inspired France and Europe with new ideas which will never be forgotten. France's finances are the best in the world. To whom does she owe them? If I had not been overthrown, I would have made a complete change in the appearance of commerce as well as industry. The efforts of the French people were extraordinary. Progress and prosperity were growing immensely and new ideas were everywhere being heard. If I had been given time, uh, then we wouldn't have even needed artisans in France. We could have had many more artists and uh, because there wouldn't have been war uh, because he was advancing things. So interesting perspective on France. I always thought of Napoleon as the villain. And um, here's Stephen Mitford Goodson pointing out, well, he was certainly the enemy of the central banking. Then, interestingly, he comes up with uh, a chapter on the century of struggle from the 1815 to 1918, Rothschild versus the people. And uh, he quotes from Lord Byron, who holds the balance of the world? Who reigns over Congress, whether royalist or liberal? Who rouses the shirtless patriots of Spain that makes old Europe's journals squeak and gibber? Who keeps the world both old and new in pain or pleasure? Who makes the politics run and liberal? The shade of Bonaparte's noble daring? No. Jew Rothschild and his fellow Christian bearing. Now, that's from Lord Byron in the 12th canto, um, showing Rothschild and Bering, who produced Bering Bank, for example. These are, are the people who are ruining the world and holding the balance of everything. Well, Central, balance, central banking has proved to be very negative. So he then goes into a case study from America. So during the colonial period, the American colonies created their own paper money. And that was first Massachusetts and then Pennsylvania, New York, Delaware and Maryland. And the colonial script of bills of credit were interest free. And 
they ran the colonies inflation-free, with very little taxes, with very stable economic growth and prosperity. Not even 1% taxes. It was an extremely effective system. So in 1763, the American statesman Benjamin Franklin visited London, and he expressed horror and shock to see slum conditions and wide prevalence of poverty in London, which should have been the richest city in the world. And when the British Parliament asked Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, explain the source of prosperity of the American colonies, he replied as follows. It's very simple. In the colonies, we issue our own money. It's called colonial script. We issue it in proportion to demands of trade and industry to make products pass easily from the producer to the consumers. We create for ourselves our own money. We control its purchasing power, and we have no interest to pay to anyone. Well, <laughs> that, that must have put the cat amongst the pigeons. 1763, the very next year, 1764, the Bank of England introduced a currency bill which severely restricted the colony's right to issue their own money, forbade its legal tender status for the payment of private and public debts, and ordered them to issue bonds at interest and sell those bonds to the Bank of England in exchange for English money, well, as a consequence, the economy of the American colonies collapsed. Within one year, more than half the population had become unemployed and destitute. The Stamp Act of 1765 was the last straw, but the abolition of the colonial currency was the primary cause of the revolution. The usury of the Bank of England, which led to so much economic hardship and unemployment in the colonies, was definitely the cause, uh, as Stephen documents here. So one of the first tasks entrusted to the Second Continental Congress, 1775, was to issue its own currency. And to finance the war's expenditures, they issued $241 million. And uh, the Bank of England quickly responded by recruiting hundreds of workmen to print millions of dollars of counterfeit American banknotes. And that's where the term, it's not worth a continental, came from, because the value of the American currency now was counterfeit to the point where, where uh, $1 was worth less than two and a half cents. And so massive inflation caused by economic warfare, a counterfeiting project. Well, 15 years later, in 1790, the Bank of England mounted another similar operation where it employed over 400 workmen in 17 printing factories in southern and central England to print the assignat, the currency of revolutionary France. Um, and so the assignat, uh, was very quickly devalued. The massive infusion of counterfeit notes caused Asinia to plummet, and there was a period of hyperinflation, which was only reversed in 1803 when Napoleon Bonaparte introduced the government-issued franc, which acquired legal tender in 1808. So that's very interesting, um, the role of the Bank of England in counterfeiting. Uh, it would be terrible if you or I did counterfeiting, but apparently they could do counterfeiting. Well, between 1791 and 1796, inflation in, uh, the, uh, amongst the Americans surged by 72%. Uh, they now had, had a national bank, a state-controlled uh, bank federal reserve type situation. So in Pennsylvania, uh, they withdrew the jurisdiction on account of alarming foreign influence and fictitious credits. Well, the Bank of North America was succeeded by a second central bank, which is called Fourth Bank of the United States. And this was imposed as a result of the intrigues of Alexander Hamilton, who was Secretary of the Treasury, and uh, it was strongly opposed by the future presidents John Adams, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson, who was then Secretary of State. Thomas Jefferson said, 
the central bank is an institution of the most deadly hostility existing against the principles and the form of our constitution. I believe that the banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than any standing armies. They've raised up a moneyed aristocracy. They've set the government at defiance. The issuing power should be taken from these banks and restored to the people to whom they belong. If the American people ever allow the banks to control the issuance of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and the corporations that grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until, until their children will wake up homeless on the continent their fathers founded. So the following year, the bank organized the first crash, the Panic of 1792. They flooded the market with cheap loans, suddenly called them in. The bank precipitated a slump, which resulted in a lot of economic and social misery, and the stock markets plummeted. Well, by the end of 1795, the bank had lent $6 million, pound, uh, $6 million to the U.S. government, 60% of its capital. And the banks then said they were concerned about the stability of government finances, so it demanded partial repayment. The government didn't have the funds available, so it was forced to sell its shareholding in the bank between 1796 and 1802. So by means of this cunning ruse, the bank became 100% privately owned, of which 75% of its shares were held by foreigners, not Americans. So in 1811, the bank's charter came up for renewal. The bank concealed its profits, operated in a clandestine manner, it was obviously unconstitutional. So Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the those violently opposed to the renewal of the bill, uh, showed that the bank was now 100% in the ownership of foreigners. And the press described the central bank bill as a great swindle, a vulture, a viper, and a cobra. And uh, so the attempt to be able to uh, reinstate this, uh, this central bank was defeated in uh, the... Uh, Congress, which was amazing because it was known that there was a lot of bribing for them to pass this bill. And so, 1811, the bank closed its doors, finally. Well, the principal shareholder of the first bank of the United States was Mayor Amschel Rothschild, real name Bauer. And he flew into a rage, declaring that either the application for the renewal of our charter is granted or the United States will find itself in a most disastrous war. I will teach these imprudent Americans a lesson and bring them back to colonial status. So Rothschild tried to influence the British Prime Minister Spencer Percival into declaring war in the United States. Well, Percival wasn't interested. Uh, and uh, so um, next thing is Rothschild's agent provocateurs stirred up discontent in North America. In order to provoke the Americans, the British started to interfere with American trade with France. And as the Royal Navy was short of sailors, they engaged in forcible recruitment or press ganging of even American sailors. And the British started to supply the Indian tribes, in particular the Shawnee chief, uh, Tecumseh, with arms in order to frustrate and curtail the settlers' westward expansion, which means terrorist attacks, murdering settlers and their families. And so the Americans were um, now, for their part, being incited to seize parts of Canada. Well, the British Prime Minister Percival could see where this was going, and he was facing more pressure from Nathan Rothschild to declare war in the United States. Well, he refused. He said the British armies already bogged down the stalemate war in Spain and Portugal, Peninsula War, with Napoleon's armies. He has no desire to commit more troops and treasure, finance more interest-bearing bank loans, just in order to save Rothschild's sinking bank interest in America. So the next thing is, the British Prime Minister, Spencer Percival, was assassinated, shot dead in Parliament itself. And uh, so the assassin, John Bellingham, 
who murdered the British Prime Minister, uh, he was a Rothschild agent. Uh, he had, in fact, worked in Russia in Archangel as an agent for import and export for the Rothschilds. And uh, he, in fact, uh, was a bitter and aggrieved man. And you could see how uh, he was manipulated uh, by two merchants, Thomas Wilson from America and American Jew, Elisha Pick, who were keen to have orders in council forbidding neutral nations from trading with France abrogated. And uh, they manipulated this man, John Bellingham, so that he, in the end, was the instrument of Rothschild assassinating the British Prime Minister, Spencer Percival. And so May the 11th, 1812, as Percival entered the lobby of the House of Commons, Bellingham stepped forward, shot him in the heart. And, of course, immediately the media starts to say, lone assassin, no conspiracy. Well, just a few weeks after Percival's murder, the Rothschilds designed legislation was passed in uh, the British Council. And uh, then in the United States, House of Representative Henry Clay, who was a Freemason, led a group of young Democrats known as Warhawks to declare war on Britain. And uh, this was split, 79 votes to 49. All 39 Federalists refused to support the war. And so this war was called Mr. Madison's War uh, because the Federalists didn't want it, uh, but uh, plainly the Democrats did. So in England, the successor to Prime Minister Percival, Lord Liverpool, was an enthusiastic supporter of the war. And uh, there's no doubt that he was working at the behest of Nathan Rothschild, who now was able to succeed in setting up the Second Bank of the United States in 1816, after the destruction caused by the 1812 to 1814 war between the United States and and Great Britain. Now, in this war, two years of war, 24,000 lives were lost. A huge debt of $105 million. When you think Britain, I mean, America only had 8 million people. And uh, now they had this colossal debt. National debt increased um, by 182%. (laughs) Uh, to 127 million by 1815, uh, by the time peace was signed. So now you get the second bank of the United States, enlarged capital and uh, lending fiat money at compound rates of interest. And uh, President James Monroe appointed Nicholas Biddle president of the bank. Now, Biddle was a Rothschild agent, and uh, uh, he had, in fact, been secretary of the United States minister to France, and uh, he had acted as the point man for James de Rothschild, who is the bank's principal investor. So this was followed by the artificially induced recession of 1819 to 1821, very profitable for the bankers, able to buy massive amounts of assets at depressed prices. And it convinced the leader of the Democrats at that stage, Andrew Jackson, that the only way to terminate these abuses was to close down the central bank. And so in the re-election campaign of 1832, uh, President Andrew Jackson campaigned under the slogan, the monster must perish, vote Andrew Jackson, no central bank. And uh, uh, he said, if Congress has the right under the Constitution to issue paper money, it has given to them to be used by themselves. It's not to be delegated to individuals or corporations. If the American people only understood the rank injustice of our banking and monetary system, there would be a revolution before morning. Well, there was a failed assassination attempt by a Rothschild agent on President Andrew Jackson, uh, 30th of January, 1835, um, and uh, the 20-year charter of the Second Bank of the United States came for renewal, and Jackson collapsed the bank by withdrawing all government deposits and repaid the national debt in entirety, leaving a surplus of $50 million in the Treasury, 
and he replaced the central bank with independent treasury system based on redeemable paper, and the, he destroyed the central bank. Well, during the next president, John Tyler's term of office, two attempts were made to bring in the Rothschild Bank again, and in fact, interesting that as this president Tyler vetoed both these bills, he was inundated with hundreds of letters threatening him with assassination if he didn't allow the Rothschild Bank to come back. But for the next 77 years, the United States developed without the need for a central bank and without any real inflation. And so interesting with the greenback money, and uh, they were able to uh, build up a strong currency uh, so that the US dollar was just a dip during the time of the war between the states. But without needing a central bank, uh, the US dollar maintained its worth for a full 90 years without any inflation. That's before they got another central bank back in. Well, at the end of the American war between the states, the US government had a war debt of $5 billion. Well, because of inflation, these bonds had declined in value to $2.5 billion. But Ulysses Grant, General Ulysses Grant, used his part ownership of the New York, New York World newspaper to denigrate and undermine the chance of the opponent of this debt uh, being uh, termed to be a $5 billion instead of a $2.5 billion uh, debt. And uh, he introduced the Public Credit Act, which paid the face value of the $5 billion worth of bonds in gold, resulting in the Rothschilds and the associates making 100% profit instead of recognizing the real devaluing of the currency. They then exchanged the, abolished the silver exchange, they replaced it with a gold standard, and uh, uh, there was all kinds of attempts uh, to demonetize American silver, and uh, you could see how the U.S. Congress were regularly bribed, uh, such as in the crime of 1873, where congressmen were bribed to vote in line with what the Rothschilds wanted, which would actually massively increase their values. So uh, there was interesting, a book written, A Tale of Two Nations, uh, which showed that London bankers, who were mostly Jewish, decided to destroy the United States by the manipulation of their currency. And uh, you also see uh, how Congressman William Jennings Bryan delivered his famous cross of gold speech saying, you shall answer their demands for a gold stand by saying thus to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Uh, speaking specifically against what the bankers were doing in order to uh, steal effectively from the entire population. Well, the standard, the so-called gold standard enforced on the people of America by the bankers brought havoc to the US economy and enabled the private bankers to withhold loans and restrict money supply. It led to a whole series of bank runs and panics, uh, 1873, 1884, 1890, <coughs> 1893, 1897, 1903 and 1907. <coughs> in each of these cases, these artificially create bank runs insist uh, the US president, such as President James Abraham Garfield. And so in 1881, after he became President, he said he is going to master the monetary problem. Whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of that industry and commerce. When you realize the entire system is very easily controlled one way or the other by a few powerful bankers at the top, 
you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. Well, that's what uh, President Garfield said at his taking office speech on the 4th of April, 4th of March, 1881. Well, two weeks later, President Garfield was gunned down by another lone assassin, a uh, Charles Gutu, who it appeared, although he was plainly a Rothschild agent, um, uh, who he even claimed at his trial that he was put up to his task by important men in Europe, promised to protect him if he was caught. Well, um, uh, everything collapsed around this assassin and uh, they didn't stand with him and nobody seemed to believe his claim that he was uh, being um, actually put up to this assassination by very powerful men. Well, the 1907 panic had its worst effects. <clears throat> so Jacob Schiff, um, uh, the CEO of Kuhn and Lub, said, unless we have a central bank with adequate controls of credit resource, this country is going to undergo the most severe far-reaching money panic in history. And so at that point, J.P. Morgan, another Rothschild frontman, set in motion panic, circling rumors that its rival, the Knickerbocker Bank and Trust Company, was insolvent. Well, the crash that occurred on the stock exchange lost 50% of their values. And then there was another 11% drop in industrial production and 26% rise in imports, an increase in unemployment from 3% to 8% unemployment. And there was a continual phase of artificially create boom and bust, inflation, deflation, all setting up the motivation and pretext to set up a central bank, which they said would solve all these never-ending problems for a time. And yet it was easily proven that these were artificially created depressions. So to mislead the public, Two alternative plans were put before Congress, one under Senator Nelson Aldrich, and uh, he was the grandfather of Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller. The other plan was set up under Paul Warburg, the Jewish banker who was acting on behalf of the Rothschild interests, headed by Baron Alfred Rothschild, and that was called the Wall Street Plan. Well, except for the distribution of reserves, both these plans were identical They had, as they aimed the establishment of a central reserve bank. Well. In 1910, the banking conspirators gathered on Jekyll Island. You might have heard of the creature from Jekyll Island. Well, this was an ultra, ultra secret. Uh, this was the Jekyll Island uh, hunt club owned by J.P. Morgan. And J.P. Morgan brought all these key conspirators together in uh, covered wagons. Um, literally, <coughs> the Pullman car had all its blinds drawn. Everyone was in total secrecy. It was known as the first name club. They only used first names so as not to reveal their identities to staff. But we now know it included um, Piet Andrew, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Frank Vanderklip, President of National City Bank of New York, Henry Davidson, Senior J.P. Morgan and Company, Charles Norton, President of the First National Bank of New York, Benjamin Strong, Vice President of Bankers Trust in New York, uh, Paul Warburg, Partner of Kuhn Lubin Company. And they all sneaked out of New York in Eldritch's Pullman car with blinds drawn from New Jersey through to Jekyll Island in Georgia. And this criminal group um, set up this gigantic trust, the most gigantic trust on earth, which as Congressman Charles Lindbergh described, this act establishes the most gigantic trust on earth, such as the Sherman Antitrust Act would dissolve if Congress did not try by this act, expressly create what by that act it was prohibited. <coughs> when the president signs this act, the invisible government by the money powers exist to create fiat money will be legalized. The greatest crime of Congress is its currency system and the schemiest 
legislative crime of all ages is perpetrated by this new banking and currency bill, which established not just income tax, but uh, the um, so-called uh, Federal Reserve Bank, which, as Stephen Goodson said, is not federal. It has no reserves and it's not a bank. Well, can you believe that a minority of only 43 senators supported this bill? And they bullied it through on Christmas Eve, uh, 23rd of December, 1913, with most of the people missing, uh, they managed to, to push this through, and this reserve bank, they promised, would create a stable currency, and business cycles and recessions would become a thing of the past. Well, as Stephen Goodson documents, since the inception of the United States Federal Reserve Bank in 1914, the US dollar has lost 97% of its purchasing power. There have been 19 recessions, the Great Depression of 1930s, the Great Recession that began in 2008. And since 1910, the national debt has increased from 2.65 billion to 17.5 trillion, with unfunded liabilities exceeding $240 trillion. Trillion. The United States Federal Reserve Bank, instead of serving as the people's banker, has operated as a private bank for the benefit of private bankers. And it should not surprise anyone that in the 100 years of its existence, its accounts have never been subjected to any kind of public audit. And so uh, the principal shareholders of the so-called American Federal Reserve Bank are the Rothschild Banks of London, Berlin, the Lazard Brothers Banks of Paris, the Israel Moses Sheaf Banks of Italy, the Warburg Banks of Hamburg and Amsterdam, the Sherishan American Express, Goldman Sachs of New York, and J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. And so... There you've got it. The U.S. so-called Federal Reserve Bank, it's not federal, it has no reserves, and it's not a bank. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Yeah, it, it, Stephen had such a wonderful way of explaining things in a simple manner, and you do it justice in the way you present his work. Um, these shows are so important, folks. Last week's one, part one. And this one, part two, um, you could literally, I would think this is about the most accessible thing you could play to a friend or a family member just to tell them a real problem stems from the bank. If you take their bank off them, as Paul English often says, they will lose everything else. And that's why today they are desperate to get us into this digital currency that they can turn off at will. Um, and they can decide what you can spend it on, and all these different things. It's all these same people that want to control your money. And being a victim of this system, um, well, I mean, we're all victims of this system, Peter just said, um, that uh, the United States dollar has lost 97% of its purchasing power since its inception in 1914. I know many of you will be talking about, well, the Federal Reserve Act was 1913. Yes, but that was the act, the back bank came to it into existence in 1914 so imagine that uh your the us dollar is worth 97 percent less today than it was then and then you can see how they use inflation how why uh mayor amsterdam rothschilds famously said give me control of a nation's currency and i care not who makes its laws simply because he knows if he controls the bank he will control the politicians he will control the media he will control the legal system and that's why you're seeing all these ramps around the world of hate speech here hate speech there um people have been passing out out flyers in america and they're trying to ramp 
uh, laws up in areas where these flyers have been put out that talk about things like banking control. Uh, they try to ramp things up and say, oh, we want laws against flyers. We want these to be felonies where people can go to jail. But nobody seems to be interested in the judicial system, in looking into what these things say and arguing if they're true or false. It's all immediately blanketed under, oh, it's hate speech, because we've been told that somebody doesn't like it. Uh, whereas in the past, you would look into something like that. If so somebody came to a, a police officer and says, right, someone's written this about me, they'd well, is it true? But now it's the case of it doesn't matter if it's true, I'm offended. I feel hurt. I feel upset. Well, of course you're going to be offended, hurt and upset if you've been operating a criminal scheme for generations and you don't want to lose it because you make such a fortune out of it. And unfortunately, there's nobody that we can go to in our police department, our politicians. There's nowhere for us to go anymore, our legal establishment. Because if you were even to approach somebody like that, I've heard of, of stories where solicitors won't represent someone if they have a certain on, on a certain matter because they know if they take that case on that they will get basically blackballed by everyone else they'll be put out of business by these people that control so much so the fear is out there and the only way we're going to get the message out is to really spread this around as much as we can and that's why these two shows and there will be more coming this particular series is going to be one of the most important that I've ever been involved in, and I think one of the most important that's out there. So please spread it far and wide. This is the sort of show you can play to anyone with a basic grasp of education because it's so simply laid out. And all the dominoes fall into place when they just see what's going on in the world. It'll give you an idea of well, why are the mainstream media so anti-Russia and Putin? You know, why, why is it... I can't open a newspaper online and not see a Ukraine flag in the top right-hand corner. All these different things. Well, you know who the power is behind the scenes. And obviously something is going on that they don't like. And they're worried that what's happening could threaten this criminal conspiracy to basically put us all in a form of financial slavery that's gone on for hundreds of years. Uh, Peter, any further comments? Yes, there's so many great, interesting things put in here. And, uh, next week, we'll be looking at the State Bank of the Russian Empire. And you know, I was astounded. Probably the most eye-opening for me was what Stephen Goodson revealed about the Russian banks. You know, the idea that Russia was so backward uh, before 1914 is actually found to be very false. And uh, you'll you'll hear the extraordinary things that Russia had the smallest national debt in the world prior to the Bolshevik Revolution. They didn't have a, a, a they didn't have a Rothschild bank. That the agricultural production was way over uh, that of any other country in the world in terms of uh, they were the biggest producers of rye in the whole world, uh, barley, oats, wheat, and so on. They were out producing uh, in every realm uh, agriculturally and so on. Uh, their rivals, Great Britain, Germany, France, and Austria. But do you know that Russia had the lowest taxes in all of Europe? And it's quite extraordinary that when you think that uh, the, the British were paying over 26% taxes and the Germans were paying 12% taxes, we're talking about 1914, uh, but Russia was paying 2.6% tax, so less than 3% tax, uh, whereas um, uh, Britain was paying literally 10 times more tax uh, than the Russians were. And so, you know, it, very interesting when you start to look at the facts and you realize, oh, 
I thought everything in Russia was just terrible and Lenin kind of modernized it, which is absolutely the opposite of what happened. And uh, and how was Russia able to be having such a um, productive system? Well, they didn't have a Rothschild bank. They didn't have usury. And uh, so, again, you, you could see so many interesting things that history, um, beware the victor's version, uh, because so often wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks. And it's, it's so important that we liberate ourselves from a false understanding of history, because as Stephen points out, that when you've got a false understanding of history, it corrupts all of your society, as, of course, happened to the Roman Empire. So, yes, I, I think this is extremely helpful. And to have someone who was a banker, who understood, and he, it's it's like with the the Wizard of Oz, where you lift the someone lifts the curtain, you see what's actually behind the screen, you realize, oh, it's so different from what I had always thought. And uh, I think that's what he's done. He's he's uh, lifted the screen, and we're seeing some of what's been going on behind the scenes. What an incredible crime that not just most of our industry and currency and savings and pensions have been stolen, but how many lives lost for ruinous bankers' wars. And people need to know these things. You will know the truth, and truth will set you free. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, Folks, you have been listening to a show entitled The Real Story of the History of Central Banking and its Enslavement of Mankind, Part 2. Peter and I will be back with you next week with Part 3. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day, and bye for now.